Good evening. Um, you can, of course, all be wonderfully English and sit as if you've never known anybody else, or I could turn my back and you could all move forward and we could have a much more intimate session. I leave the choice to you. Um, some house notices first. I'm Christopher Cook and I'll be looking after this evening's event. Um, can I ask you to make certain that you've turned off your telephone, uh, a pager, anything else that might sing, dance, rock and roll in an inappropriate way. Um, if we have to leave suddenly, just make your way to one of the signs with the green man running, chasing an arrow, and we shall be taken out of the building uh, to a place of safety uh, by a member of the English National Opera team. Uh, and lastly, sometimes we get a kind of jolly hubbub from below of people who are partying a little bit earlier, who perhaps have arrived at the Café Momus uh, and act too soon. Um, I apologise in advance. I hope that they won't make any noise. Let me begin with a quotation. La Boheme will leave no great trace upon the history of our lyric theatre, and it will be as well for the composer to return to the straight road of art. Mm -hmm. So wrote Carlo Bazzezio, the music critic of La Stampa, after the first night of La Boheme. How wrong. How wrong we all know as we unwrap the second packet of tissues still at the end of Act One to mop up our tears. I sometimes think that Boheme is one of the most, two most perfect operas in the entire repertoire. The other is, of course, Carmen. There's not an ounce of dramatic fat on either of these works. Each of the four acts of La Boheme has its own pace and timbre. The characters are fully rounded. The scores bound together with a handful of wonderfully easily remembered musical themes and so well done that this opera could make a stone weep. There are, of course, two Bohemes with librettos carved out of Seine de la Vie de Bohème, Scenes from Bohemian Life, which was a collection of stories by Henri Moget, published in 1851 and set in the Latin quarter of Paris in the 1840s. In 1893, Ruggiero Leon Cavallo was at work on a version of La Bohème that he hoped would be a hit to match his one-act wonder, Pagliacci. At this stage, Puccini was thinking of an entirely different subject for his next opera, from a story by the Sicilian writer Giovanni Verga called The She-Wolf. Then Leon Cavallo and Puccini met, and Puccini, who was nothing if not thoroughly competitive, set to work on his version of La Boheme with two librettists, the librettists who'd helped to make his name with Manon Lesco before, Giuseppe, Giacoso, Cosa and Luigi Illica. As always with Puccini, throughout his life, getting the libretto right was a tortuous business for La Boheme. First, Giacosa threatened to resign. He'd had enough. Then Luigi Illica got the hump, declaring that he felt used, cast aside, taken up again, and once more shoved away like an old dog. Puccini himself was firm. Illica should calm down, and then we shall get on with the work. But I, too, want to have my say, as the necessity arises, and I'm not prepared to do anybody's bidding. By 1895, the libretto in four acts had just about been hammered out and Puccini had started to compose. But he was still demanding, even at this stage, changes to the text. And then it was done. Later, Puccini would tell his biographer that when he'd finished the scene with Mimi's death, I had to get up. And standing in the middle of my study, alone in the silence of the night, I began to weep like a child. It was as though I had seen my own child die. And audiences, of course, have been weeping ever since that first performance of the opera at the Teatro Reggio in Turin on February the 1st, 1896. And in the pit to conduct that premiere, the 28-year-old Arturo Toscanini. 
Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore Puccini's opera and to talk about designing opera here at English National Opera. Nicholas Sperling is head of production at Eno and was production manager on Benedict Andrews' version of La Boheme when it began its journey to London in Amsterdam. Katie Bird, who's covering the role of Mimi, will be sharing her ideas about love and death. And also we're joined by Christopher Hopkins, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. They'll be coming later. But our first guest is Dr. Carol Reeves, who's a senior lecturer in science and technology studies at University College London, and who knows more about the disease that kills Mimi and a great many other young women in the 19th century, particularly in operas, consumption, tuberculosis, the wasting sickness, call it what you will. Will you please welcome Carol Reeves. <laughs> Carol, are we right to think of tuberculosis as preeminently a 19th century disease? Well, not really. It's, um, it's been discovered in human remains dating back 9,000 years. But it was a great killer in the 19th century. So it would, in Britain and Europe, it might kill one in four people. Uh, and it's really during the 19th century that you start to see tuberculosis featured in the arts. Do we, did they understand what the causes of the disease was in the 19th century? Well, sometimes, not, not entirely. It was the, the, the germ which causes the disease was discovered in 1882, but before that time, there was an idea that it was a constitutional defect, so it might be a moral or a physical constitutional problem, um, but also that uh, it could be caused by intense creative activity. And so you start to get people who were uh, consumptive or had tuberculosis in the arts, composers, artists and authors, uh, who have seemed to burn themselves extremely brightly, but burn themselves out. I've often wondered, but maybe we shouldn't be too graphic, what actually happens to the patient who's suffering from tuberculosis? Well... Tuberculosis is an infectious disease, so you get the typical fevers. The un for people in the 19th century who were untreated, they suffered with fevers, um, and they became very thin. So the disease, particularly tuberculosis of the lung, which is the most common tuberculosis, um, was called consumption because it seemed to consume people from inside. So they got very, very thin, very, very slim. Um, and... Uh, Unfortunately, one of the classic deaths in tuberculosis is a lung hemorrhage. So patients would expire within a few moments, uh, which is extreme. But most people faded away from exhaustion. And, of course, if they faded away in the arms of a lover, this created the concept of a romantic death, a romantic disease. And, and how contagious is the disease? It's not very contagious. It's a disease, really, of overcrowding and poverty. So it's quite difficult to catch. But, of course, if you're living cheek by jowl with people, which is what really happened in the 19th century, and you see this in the opera, um, people did catch it, and, and therefore it, it, it was fairly contagious in, in those conditions. Is there a cure? I mean, could Mimi have... Um, you know, Musetta sends out for... Um, medicine or goes out for medicine. I mean, was there a cure? There was no cure for tuberculosis, and I'm afraid in some cases there isn't now. Um, but certainly in the 19th century, there, was no, there were no drugs, there were no magic bullets, as we now see antibiotics in the 21st century. 
Um, but gradually, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, um, the idea that patients could self-heal by lots of rest and nourishing food, and that's when the tuberculosis sanatoria became popular. But yes, in Mimi's case, people could go out for drugs, but generally they were quack, quack cures, uh, and they were said to work, but of course they didn't. Those sanatoria, of course, become also an object of interest to writers. Um, one thinks of Thomas Mann and The Magic Mountain, yeah. his great novel. Um, the Magic Mountain, they're up on hills, they're up in different kinds of air. Is there something about the way that this disease is understood that you need to be somewhere cold and bracing with the Yorkshire wind pouring down your throat? Yes, the idea that mountain air uh, is curative in tuberculosis was very common and often uh, TB sanatorium were situated in amongst pine trees. That the idea that the, the pine, the pine trees, and the disinfectant uh, produced by pine trees and the air was curative to the lungs. Um, and in fact, you know, you see disinfectants of the time being made to smell like pines. There's the idea that it's a, a, a curative. Jay's fluid suddenly comes yes. to mind. So we should all be sniffing, well, not Jay's fluid, but pine, pine cones. Um, does the idea about this disease change as the 19th century developed? We think about this as being the great century of discovery for medicine, in which we move away from leeches and bloodletting and cupping, and we end up with a proper kind of uh, taxonomy of disease. Do ideas about TB change? Not really. Um, before the discovery of the germ, which kills you, or which, which, is, which, is cause, which causes tuberculosis, uh, was discovered in 1882. I, the idea, of course, was that, that this was a constitutional illness, and there was quite a lot of stigma to that, because there was the idea that you, could, you were weak, inherently weak, or physically and morally. However, even when the germ was discovered in 1882, in a way that made things more fearful, because the idea that you could catch a infectious disease which couldn't be cured because there was no cure actually made it even more scary in many ways. And, and what do you think the appeal to artists, to composers? After all, Mimi isn't the only woman who dies on stage from consumption in the 19th century. There is Violetta Valerie in La Traviata too. What's the appeal to artists of this disease? The appeal of tuberculosis is that it's seen as the archetypal uh, good death the idea that you would fade away peacefully. And the reality is perhaps not like that. But the idea was that it was, it was a fading away. Um, and so that was seen as, a, 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 in a world where there were very nasty deaths and nasty diseases, the idea that you would just fade away was quite romantic in a way. Uh, and the archetypal image of that is a photograph which was taken in 1858 by Henry Peach Robinson, and it's called Fading Away. We have got some copies of that here, but if you Google Fading Away, um, this picture of this girl who's this virginal, young, 
girl who's surrounded by her family and dying peacefully. And in fact, there was a fashion in the 19th century for white muslin dresses and white face powder, which emulated the consumptive, fragile, vulnerable appearance of these women who were very commonly dying of TB. What I love about the photograph, which is presumably a staged yes. photograph, is that father you know, lost in grief, has his back to us, looking out at the world outside. Mother, it is, who sits on the end of the bed as the girl is dying. In a sense, it's feminised, this disease, by the very image that Peter Robinson chooses, isn't it? The reason it's feminised is that the idea, it's certainly the Victorian cultural ideal, is that women should be vulnerable, fragile, swooning and pale whereas the masculine, the men should be protective and masculine and strong. And so, although that's an unfortunate stereotype, it, it, the, the romance of it is mirrored in culture and in stage performances. It's very curious to me that the other great disease of the 19th century, which we await a cure for, which will eventually, though perhaps a long way off, kill men, Syphilis is not the subject we see much in, on the operatic stage. Men don't die of syphilis in Verdi or Puccini. Well, syphilis uh, has uh, not quite the romantic appeal uh, of tuberculosis. It was extremely common, and in fact, it was really as common as TB. But, of course, uh, the, the death from tuberculosis, from, from the death from syphilis, is really associated with the physical dissolution and the descent into madness. And for 19th century religious uh, church-going audiences, that was really a step too far, uh, and it, it wouldn't really have been very popular. Uh, and in addition, I have to say, putting my feminist hat on, that most composers were male, and so perhaps that was a little too close to home. Is it fair to say that, in a way, these two diseases are gendered? That, that, that tuberculosis, as you said earlier, belongs to women, but syphilis is really a male disease? And since men control cultural production, they probably keep quiet about that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one last question, Carol. Um, how accurate are composers in describing the process and the progress of the disease? When we see Mimi dying tonight of tuberculosis, has Puccini got it right? He has, but of course the romance is much better than the reality. But in art and culture... Uh, nobody really wants to look at the reality because composers of the 19th century were seeing that all the time. They were seeing it. Many of them had tuberculosis themselves. So the reality is not portrayed because people who go to the theatre, people who go to art galleries are wanting escapism. They don't want to see what they can see around them at home and in the neighbourhood. Carol Reeves, thank you so much. Thank Stay you. with us, please. I'm sure there'll be more questions from everybody. Well, we're joined now, um, splendidly, uh, rather early than I'd hoped, by uh, our next two guests. They are Kate Bird, who's covering the role of Mimi, and Christopher Hopkins, who's a member of the English National Music Staff. Please welcome Kate Bird and Christopher Hopkins. Kate, you've perhaps been forewarned you have to you earn your supper twice, once by talking, then by singing. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Mimi. Um, 
she falls in love with Rodolfo astonishingly fast. Even those who believe in romantic love as a kind of clap of thunder and it's on forever, I mean, would be surprised at how fast it is. Is it hard for Mimi to make the end of Act One convincing? Um, I think, well, in this production, they have her um, stood in the doorway watching. So they've kind of set the idea up that actually she's, she's been watching him for a while. Um, and that perhaps he's a well-known novelist and she's a bit of a fan, so she's kind of hovering around. But, I mean, um, even if it's not set that way, um, they live in the same building, so they're bound to have seen each other walking up and down the stairs now and then. So, you know, she might have seen him on the stairwell and then created a fantasy in her head. Um, yeah, so... And is there also a class difference between them that might add to either of their sense of fantasy? I mean, for him, she's a girl from a class he doesn't know, the working class. Uh, for her, he's a boy from a rather posh family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, when, when she um, sings her aria, she's, she's quite embarrassed. She's sort of saying, you know, there's, n there's not really much to say about me. I, you know, I just make so flowers. <laughs> um, but then she sort of loses herself and then... What you, the link between them is their love of poetry. Um, so that's, that's what joins them, and that's, they, you know, they just get mixed up in that. Why does she always, this heroine, tug at our heartstrings? I mean, I said, not entirely facetiously at the beginning, you know, that, that, that if you don't weep by the end of Act One, you are a stone in a kind of way. Yeah. What is it that makes her tug at our hearts? I think it's her vulnerability and her innocence and... She sort of, she, you know, she's, she's outside their little friendship group and she just sort of wants to be part of it and then she suddenly joins it and um, gets lost in all this fun with the boys. Um, and, yeah, I just... Her, yeah, her vulnerability, I think. Fast-forwarding, alas, to the end and your death, um, so to speak, um, how difficult is the death? It's very sudden, isn't it? Yes. Um, well, it, it's sort of, um, it's built up. You see her in Act 3 very differently from you, when you see her in Act 1 and, one and 2. Um, she's obviously tired. She's obviously, you know, it's taking its toll. Um, and the other characters mention, you know, mention that she's fading away. Um, but yes, it is because she, she comes in. I mean, there's a picture there when she's, she comes in. and These she, are all stills, everybody, from the production yeah. you're going to see this evening. Uh, and she can hardly walk. Um, so yeah, it, it, yes, it is quite hard, and it's also quite hard to to sing it because you want to, you know, you want everyone to believe that you are dying, but you also have to sound beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so it has to have it, it has to have different colours, and it has to have an edge of feeling tired, but also at the same time have some beauty as well. So yeah, it's difficult, and you have to do that lying down as well. So. <laughs> Of, co of course, what also moves us is sitting in the auditorium is that we can hear the orchestra uh, commenting, supporting, yeah. uh, questioning you and all yeah. the others. I've often wondered, I mean, when you're singing Mimi, are you aware of what the orchestra is telling us about you? You are, but we, we were talking uh, in, in uh, our sessions how uh, Puccini does everything for you. you just, if you just sing what is on the page, people will be moved and it's done it's done. If you start listening to all, these all this beautiful music behind you, you get lost in it, then it comes a bit more self-indulgent. Whereas if you just think about the words and the simplicity of what you're singing and what you're saying, everything enhances and it's done for you.
What are you and Christopher going to perform for us? Um, we're going to perform the aria um, from Act 3, Don De Lieta. Right. <laughs> Christopher, thank you both very much indeed. Christopher, is this the first time you've worked on La Boheme? Uh, it is, yeah. What, do you remember your feelings when you opened the score for the first time? Um, well, it, I mean, it's a piece that's so, um, you know, it's everywhere 
in your life, in a sense, you know, if you're working in uh, working or studying music or studying opera or whatever. So, so it's, not, it's not a piece that I didn't know before um, doing it, and it's a piece that I've done bits of, you know, and you do duets and you do the arias here and there. Um, but, it's the, yeah, it was the first time I've done it, done the whole lot. And um, I think the thing that struck me is how wonderfully it's constructed when you put it all together and when you really look at it in detail and really start learning it and doing it um, you know, every day and finding this new stuff every day in it and finding new you know, little lines here and there or little details that are in, this, in the score. Um, it, it, it's something I didn't, uh, sort of naively didn't really expect, I think, because you sort of say, oh, it's Bohem, you know, everyone knows Bohem, isn't it marvellous? Yeah. Uh, and, and actually you say, well, actually it's a real, it's a real um, work of genius construction as well as just being, um, you know, as well as being beautiful music and, and something that everyone knows I and loves. Are the, are the basic building blocks musically these themes that are associated with the characters and sometimes with events and so forth? I mean, in the sense that we, we constantly are being helped by Puccini to know where we are or to think about other things with these themes? Um, yeah, in a sense. I mean, there are, there are obvious themes and there are less obvious themes. So, I mean, you, you say Musetta. You know, she comes back, and that's quite an obvious statement when she enters the room, and you hear that in, you know, different keys here or there. You know. um, or when she starts, you know, that sets up the whole Musetta thing. So that I'd say that's probably the most obvious, in a sense, dare I say, leitmotif of a character. Um, I think on a on a deeper level, there's 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 music which represents the sort of emotion or the feeling of the scene or um, the feeling of the characters. Or, so, so, for example, the beginning. I mean, that's, that's the energy of the Bohemians and their, you know, their excitement and, 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 and all of that stuff. And that's not so much necessarily a theme of a specific person. It's like a general idea of excitement and, and Bohemian. You know, Does Puccini I mean, weave these together symphonically, like one might expect Wagner to do in his mature stuff? Or is it simply his extraordinary gift as an orchestrator that makes us constantly reposition these little themes? Um, it's a little bit of both. It's not on the level of Wagner so interwoven altogether, um, I don't think. Um, there are places, like towards the end of Act Three, um, where uh, there's a lot of different stuff going on and there, there are themes like it hidden within, within the texture of the music. Yeah, that does happen. Um, uh, I've totally forgotten the question, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> let, let me ask really an impossible question, but, okay. but I, I can't resist it. Why is it that we are so affected by this music? That's a very difficult question. Um, I mean... It, it's, uh, I don't know, it's there, it's been with us for a long time. I think its popularity is one thing, but why is it popular? The tunes are memorable, uh, the orchestration is delicate and sensitive, and it's not, um, it's not just an underlay to the, to the drama, it's a part of the drama. All the time the music is a part of the drama. And sometimes that might be setting the scene, you know, the snowflakes in Act Two. But there's actually very few points in the music where the orchestra plays on its own. And in a, that, in a sense, that's, to me, that's the one place in the opera where that's separate from the drama. That's the music setting the scene. And pretty much everywhere else in the opera, the music is, is absolutely an interwoven part of the drama. Um, 
in a much more immediate way that it drives it and it reacts to it, like you were saying earlier, you know, and so on. Um, so there's that element. The melodies themselves, why are they memorable? They're, it's not, um, they're not leapy melodies. They're quite simple melodically. It's beautifully written for the voice. So it's, you know, if you sing it well, it sounds great. You know, um, the melodies themselves are memorable because they, they, yeah, I think there's something almost childlike about some of them that they move in very simple ways, and it's just what happens underneath the melody that that that, that um, creates the sort of extra level of beauty. But the actual melody itself, you could go home and sing um, uh, quite easily. Christopher, thank you very much. You and to Katie too. Thank you both very much indeed. Our last guest this evening is Nicholas Sperling, who is head of production here currently at the English National Opera and was production manager on Benedict Andrew's version of La Boheme when it began its journey in Amsterdam. And we have his real treat. He's brought with him the model for this production. Will you please welcome Nicholas Sperling? <laughs> Nicholas, I think we should start unashamedly with the set. Um, just explain a little bit about this immensely complicated design. How does, how does it work and where are we? Um, well, well, we'll start exactly with, with the model and what I've put up. Um, this is a representation of Act Two, the Café Momus. Um, and it looks like a jumble of seven elements just sort of randomly placed on stage, uh, but it isn't really, and it's, it's very carefully done and something that was worked out in rehearsal and what would work best for the setting and allowing all the action to take place where it needs to take place. Um, it is a very complex set, um, which I hope you as an audience will not actually notice, because that's our job there, is to make it look wonderfully simple. Um, but of these seven elements, two of them are radio controlled, so please do ensure that your mobile phones are switched <laughs> off. We, we had a bit of a, uh, an, an event on opening night uh, with uh, truck number one over here. Um, the others are pushed about manually. And when, if we do have time at the end of this session, um, I might actually just turn them around and put them into their act one and four position just to show you how wonderfully modular uh, this design is and how it works to represent the various situations that we need for Acts 1, 2 and 3. This is a solution, presumably, <coughs> in terms of design, that answers the question about how to create an opera in Amsterdam and then bring it to the London Coliseum. Yes, well, just some interesting background information is to note the difference between the two houses. Um, at the Coliseum, we play at an opening, a width of about 14 metres. In Amsterdam, they played at 24 so it's a much wider stage that they have uh, in Amsterdam. And what we were able to do, and that's of course part of the brief for the designer when you start a process like this, is this opera will start in Amsterdam, but it will need to work in a smaller stage, on a smaller stage, in this case, the London Coliseum. But it may also have a life further than that. And that's when it really is good to be able to have a design that is so easily interchangeable we are playing with a smaller set than Amsterdam did. Where we have seven units, Amsterdam had nine. So that's one way you've adapted the set to fit this house. What else have you done to it, to <laughs> adapt it to fit? Um, we've, we've, we've had to actually make quite a few alterations. Um, one of it uh, is also 
again, something I hope you don't notice, but um, the set piece of Act Three, which is a single unit um, on stage, um, has actually been remade. It is a dummy, it's a double. And it's something that we manufactured here in the UK to facilitate a scene change from Act Three to Act Four. Um, and that is something which they didn't have in Amsterdam. And it's just a way of trying to work around the set and its limitations and its possibilities when it comes to, to our house. Just a technical problem. I mean, how do you get a production from one city to another? This is your pigeon, <laughs> this is your job. How on earth do you do it? Well, um, by just on, on the back of big trailers, yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we, we sometimes envisage these, these pieces just rolling down the motorway if, if it were just that easy. Um, this set actually breaks down really well and came over to the UK on five trailers. Yeah. And, and, and the longer you've been doing this job, um, does it become easier to no. imagine how to take these things no. to pieces? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and that's the fun thing of the job. Um, and you are represented with a conundrum every time a designer presents a design. And every designer tries to just be, again, very in it. They try to be innovative, try to just, just throw you a curveball, really. And even though it is there to uh, serve the opera and the action happening on stage, the designers are always trying to just push the boundaries of how we can make something more exciting, something more visual than what we are used to. Um, and we, as a technical, as a production um, department side of the whole process, are there to try and make it work. And presumably, um, any good designer is trying to up the budget that you've given him and, and, and pretend he can have more money. So there's a, a financial element in all this, too. Well, that's that wonderful thing of, of they, they believe that they have more money than, than, they, <laughs> than they've been allocated, and they, they keep believing that until opening night. Um, and we try and facilitate that, and not necessarily in spending more money. And that is the, the, the trick and the nice thing. The, the, the fun part of the job is trying to come up with solutions of to these problems, to requests, and a lot of things evolve during rehearsal, of course. And we have the set in rehearsal for five weeks with the singers. And again, being a transfer production from Amsterdam to London, there were eight months in between the two productions. And yes, a lot has changed from the Amsterdam production to, to London. And you have to be able to accommodate that. Presumably, I mean, tonight's director is, is Benedict Andrews, who um, uh, has had not only the eight months, but has got a brand new cast. So presumably he has an opportunity too, quite apart from anybody else, to look again at the ideas that had excited him as he tried to stage originally. Yes, and I, and I think that is, that's a very exciting and fantastic opportunity to use, um, that you do meet your cast on day one in the rehearsal studio and you suddenly are confronted with, a, in, in, the, in this case, a very vibrant young cast who are up for doing a whole lot of new, different things um, and are also able to be more physical and, oh boy, do they use the set <laughs> properly. Give yes. us some examples of the things that we're going to see here tonight that we wouldn't have seen if we'd, if we'd flown to Amsterdam or taken the train. Well, may, may I mention the uh, <laughs> drugs? Um, so, well, drugs, drugs are a new element in this, in this production. I'm sure you've all read about it uh, in the press, um, and I leave everybody to, to make up their own minds about it, of course. But it is something that 
and I will not speak for Benedict, but I believe that any director has got the right and the, the great privilege when you do have eight months between two runs of your, of your show to be able to go back and think, well, what worked in Amsterdam, what didn't work, and what might work in London, and what will not work. Um, Act four has got quite a few uh, differences, just physical differences of how um, the cast run about the sets. We've, we've added in a basketball fight. Um, and that's, 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 that is because the cast were up for it and were able to do it. Um, so, so changes like that. And the, the consequence of that second change is a very interesting one because it makes the Bohemians actually look younger than any group of Bohemians I've ever seen in this opera. That is very true, yes. I mean, the, the very first production I saw, I shan't tell you where, I mean, they really did look as if they were about to draw their pensions. <laughs> but these are young people in love, and so that sense of, 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 of knocking around is important, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think it flows through the whole production, through, through the whole evening, it is a very young, vibrant piece of theatre, of, of opera, and, and just the whole feeling, the, the experience of the evening. And it's set in that space that somehow more and more belongs to young people, which is the heart of cities. Absolutely. This is an um, urban experience. Absolutely. It's a very industrial space. And again, as I said, if, if we have time, I'll, I'll change it to the, to the um, apartment scene. And the first time I was confronted with it in Amsterdam, I was quite sort of taken aback because we, we are all used to the traditional bohem atmosphere of small, tiny little rooms somewhere upstairs and almost being spoon-fed these ideas by what we see on stage. And that doesn't happen in this production at all. And it's very much left over to your imagination to fill in a whole lot of the information, uh, which is very interesting. And, and in a way, maybe what both the space uh, and indeed the performance do, is to question the rather romantic with a capital R assumptions we've always had about this opera. You know, there is a sense perhaps in which, with La Boheme, we always have wanted to step into a warm bath and feel comforted. There's no comfort here, is there? These are young people who are cold, young people who are going, in one case, to die. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think we also confronted with, with their very harsh realities and whether that is on the drug scene um, or just in, in the way that they are living. Entirely changing tack, you have a new job here at English National Opera for the time being. Just tell us a bit about what it is. Well, as head of production, I um, am at the head of the production office. Um, we have currently three production managers, including myself, who production manage all the productions over the year here at the Coliseum and wherever ENO decides to take a production. Um, we each do a production at a time. Um, and ultimately, as head of production, I would be responsible for the end result, uh, just to make sure that the production managers are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. And our ultimate responsibility in this company is to look after the production of the set, to make sure it's done on time, at the quality that the designer and the team wanted, and of course within budget. And are you, as Supremo, also going to be looking after individual productions, or have you been freed of that tyranny? No, unfortunately not. I wish I was. Um, and also on, on the stage period of Bohem of the last two weeks before the opening night, uh, you completely lose um, touch with what's going on uh, with the other productions. Um, my next production will be Aknaten, um in the spring, uh, and before that, I'm just looking, just looking after the team and that we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. 
I often wonder, in terms of, of, of the number of productions in the course of a year, both revivals and new productions, I mean, presumably the, the element for all of you is not only to ensure the, the production gets on stage, but you're an essential part of delivering what one might think of as the Eno vision of what opera is about too. Do you sit down as production managers and think about that as a kind of crucial part of what you want to do? Well, we, we often sit together and moan. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the, the, the requests um, are increasingly just getting, well, not necessarily bigger, but more, well, interesting and, and more challenging. Um, and again, that's coming back to why I do this job is because we are presented with with a design and you are there to try and make that into reality and even though we don't influence the vision of the company we are very integral into how it is eventually presented and we try and stay true to the original feel and design of each production because um, we normally would have an opportunity for a few questions. We've got a few minutes here, but I think it would be wonderful instead if you were simply to rearrange us back to Act One so we get a sense of how this immensely complicated set really works. As if by magic, ladies and gentlemen. Amazing. Amazing. Fantastic. Um, there we have the apartment for the Bohemians. Yes. Their stove. And there we have the little door at the front where Mimi keeps her watch on the man she's obviously fallen in love with. Yes. Extraordinary. Don't try it with cornflake packets, I think is the message. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Um, but before, on your seats, you'll find notes for the other pre-performance talks uh, in the current season. We should welcome you happily if you would like to come and join us again. Um, thank you to all of you for being here this evening. I hope you'll have a really terrific evening watching this piece. But our big thanks, of course, are reserved for our guests, Nicholas Sperling, Katie Bird, Carol Reeves and Christopher Hopkins. Thank you all four very much indeed. <laughs>